The Guardian. Time is running out very, very fast. Our, the future of our children and grandchildren is at stake. We can turn this crisis into an opportunity by investing seriously in renewable energy. Not only will we help the climate, but we can also generate millions of clean new jobs in a renewable energy sector. The past 10 days have seen countries meeting in Cancun, Mexico for the UN talks on climate change. A globally binding deal on cutting carbon emissions is not going to come out of these talks. But what compromises can be made that will make a future deal possible? I'm James Randerson and this week's Focus podcast is a look at the main stories from COP16 in Cancun. We'll also be examining how the leaked US cables have affected the talks and whether a universal agreement on climate change is achievable at all. First, let's run through some of the main areas of debate and compromise at Cancun. Kyoto Protocol the only legally binding agreement for countries to reduce greenhouse gases. Commitment period runs out in 2012. Gigaton gap to hold emissions to a maximum temperature rise of 2 degrees. Pledges agreed by countries as a result of the Copenhagen Accord only go 60% of the way towards this. Forests. Proposed international plan called RED, reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation an international forest and land use agreement which will allow countries to offset carbon emissions by protecting forests in developing countries. Finance to raise $100 billion a year by 2020 for developing countries to cope with climate change. Verification. Commit to an international programme by which countries will monitor one another's progress on emission reduction commitments and climate aid pledges. To discuss how we've fared on these issues at the conference, I'm joined from Cancun by The Guardian's environment editor, John Vidal. From Oxford by Rob Bailey, Oxfam's climate change advisor. And here in London by Michael Jacobs, senior fellow at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at London School of Economics and former special advisor to Gordon Brown on climate change. Hello to you all. On to one of the most significant diplomatic moves of the conference so far. We are not supporting uh, the second commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol because uh, it is not an effective vehicle uh, for addressing global climate change mitigation. And uh, its coverage is only 27% of the total emissions. And that share will be further decline in the coming years. So in order to address uh, global climate change in a truly effective way, uh, we have to address uh, the mitigation uh, targets and mitigation actions by all the major emitters. That uh, discussion is uh, conducted in the OCA uh, based on the Copenhagen Code. So that is why uh, we are not in a position uh, to participate in the second comment period of the Kyoto Protocol. That was Japan's representative at the talks, Sakaba Mitsuo, explaining that Japan will not be going forward uh, with a new round of the Kyoto commitment period. Um, John, was that a great surprise at the talks? No, it's been an open secret for for almost two years now that Japan was never happy with the, uh, the extension of the Kyoto Protocol. What was interesting was the vehemence with which their uh, trade minister um, uh, talked and, 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 and repeated it here. And it was the timing on day two um, of the conference which really took people back by surprise. Um, they didn't expect it to come so... Japan is usually much more uh, ambiguous and 
and uh, this, they were coming straight out. It came straight from the Japanese Prime Minister. It was a bold statement, and you know, as other people have said, it has thrown the talks into, uh, into a semi-crisis. And, and do you think it's going to provide a, the green light for other countries that are perhaps um, even less uh, keen on Kyoto, like perhaps Russia and, uh, and, uh, and Canada, to make similar moves? Yes, there are other countries hiding behind uh, Japan in, uh, in, 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 in this case. Um, I had a long talk with the Japanese uh, last night, and again, they're absolutely adamant they're not going to change. So even if Canada and Australia or whoever said they were coming in behind, it wouldn't make much difference. Basically, there is an irreconcilable uh, difference at the moment, and, and Japan is not going to change. So it's a question, as the, as the, uh, the minister told me, um, they, we, we will just have to find a very, very subtle form of words which they expect nobody will be happy with, but will have to be reasonably acceptable. Uh, Rob, what, what does the developing world think about this? Well, this has always been one of the real flashpoints in the negotiations. And from a developing country perspective, there's, uh, there's a lot of um, uncertainty and distrust, really, of, of rich countries and whether or not, without a second commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol, whether rich countries really will ever get round to enshrining their, their next round of emissions cuts in a legally binding framework. The Kyoto Protocol exists at the moment and, and provides a framework under which rich countries have to um, to make their cuts under a legally binding system. But if they don't agree this second commitment period, then developing countries aren't confident and don't have enough trust in the process that the next round of cuts are actually going to materialise and be binding. And Michael, is this is this game over for Kyoto? Uh, no, I don't think it is, actually. Um, I think it was a bit crass of Japan to make this statement uh, so early in the conference when uh, the main aim should be to, to build trust towards uh, a final negotiation. Um, but the real issue is not uh, the Kyoto Protocol, but it's, um, uh, it's whether there will be a legally binding agreement that binds all uh, major economies into uh, making emissions uh, reductions, uh, whether those are absolute or relative to their business-as-usual projections. And so the big argument for for, for many years has been, will the major emerging economies be willing not to set targets for themselves, but just to commit to actions that they will take, but to do so in a legally binding form? And all the Kyoto parties, including Europe, um, uh, the European Union, want to see the major emerging economies commit their actions to a legally binding outcome. And Europe has said it, will, it is prepared to enter its commitments into a second period for the Kyoto Protocol, but only if the major emerging economies put their actions into a parallel, probably, rather than a single, legally binding outcome. So Japan's position doesn't help the talks, but no one in the developed world was, is willing to make their commitments binding if the major econ emerging economies are not willing to make theirs binding. So this really doesn't change the fundamental disagreement that lies at the heart of these talks and of the talks for the last few years. And, of course, the most significant um, emerging nation is, is China, um, who were, of course cast by some at least as the wrecker of the, of the negotiations in Copenhagen they, they seem to have been I don't know more of a positive pressure, presence this time around do you think? China was very chastened by the criticism that it, uh, that it received uh, after Copenhagen. I think it had thought that the sort of procedural uh, manoeuvrings that went on in Copenhagen wouldn't then come out into the public domain um, and didn't like the fact that it was criticised. China's position is very interesting, though. China is unwilling, at least at the moment, to bind itself to future.
future actions. It doesn't like the principle that it is now on a par with developed countries. It wants to preserve that distinction between the developing countries and China and the developed ones. Developed ones should have binding commitments and developing ones shouldn't, is its position. And yet it is taking action. And uh, its own commitments at home, which are the actual things which will cut emissions, um, as will be put in its 12th five-year plan, which we're uh, expecting early in the new year, will bind it domestically. So that it's not that China won't do things, and this is also true of India and Brazil and the other big emerging nations, it's that they don't want to be bound in a uh, and to have parallel status or equal status with developed countries. So this is almost a theological dispute about international relations. It's not really about what China does. Now, the US have made it clear they will not go forward on things that developing countries want, like climate finance and a deal on forestry, unless they get something in return from the large developing countries. So are they wrecking the chances of a positive outcome? Tim Worth is a former Democratic senator and a former U.S. negotiator at Kyoto. Well, I don't think the U.S. wants to wreck, and nobody's going to wreck it. Nobody ever wrecks a negotiation like this, I don't think. Right now, people are bewildered because there's no strategy. They think that you have to have some kind of an international agreement to have any result. You don't. We're not going to get an international agreement for a long time, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years. It's too complicated. It's too difficult. We don't know how to do the whole thing. So you take a number of discrete pieces. They're going to do the best you can. I mean, they're not going to add up to everything that you want to do. But you're going to have advance faster on some things than on others. There's no guarantee anywhere. There's no guarantee. There are no guarantees in life. But you set the goal and you do the best you can and you pick out what you can do and you cheerfully go at it and you try to get the U.S. and China working together on this. People's economies are changing. I mean, the change in Latin America is dramatic in the last few years. The change in China is overwhelming. The India government is moving very, very rapidly. The U.S. at the federal level is totally dysfunctional. But at the state and local level, you got lots of things going on. You bypass the federal level for a while, and you really focus on state-level activities and city-level activities. And you just think differently about this. And that's what this the U.S. administration has to think differently about it. So far, we're still locked into the old architecture and the assumption that you have to have one agreement and we have to follow up on that. That's it's not going to happen. So let's shift gears. Tim Worth. And we're joined from Cancun by The Guardian's U.S. environment correspondent, Suzanne Goldenberg. Suzanne, can you paint us a picture of the U.S. position at these talks and, and domestically? Well, the core for the Obama administration at home and abroad now is lowering expectations, and they're doing that at a daily basis on Cancun. We've seen the um, U.S. envoy, Todd Stern, get out in front of the press every day and say, well, there is a deal to be had here. I'm not sure we're going to get it. I'm not sure there's going to be a deal. That's a message that we're hearing at Cancun every single day. Um, and the reason for that, for his pessimism, for his desire to uh, lower expectations, is twofold, really. One is, uh, you know, there's a broader recognition by everybody, including the U.S., that the U.S. doesn't have anything to offer at these talks because Obama doesn't have the power to deliver very much at home. Um, and that cold fact, that reality is really dictating America's position here at the talks, which is its insistence on a balanced outcome. And what that means is that America says that it would be prepared to block progress on deforestation, climate finance, uh, even a deal on technology, unless it also sees 
uh, detailed and adequate progress on its core demands, and uh, that is an accounting regime for emissions cuts by uh, the emerging economies like China and India and Brazil, and a way of verifying those. So that's what's dominating uh, events here at Cancun. Michael, some people have suggested that we could just ignore the US and go ahead without them, um, you know, as if they're a kind of stumbling block that, that could just be kind of walked around. Is that, is that feasible? Uh, well, it, it's feasible in the sense that you could get an agreement uh, amongst countries other than the US. Uh, we have one of those. It's called a Kyoto Protocol. Um, and uh, it is possible that countries would uh, be willing to make commitments under such an agreement. What they wouldn't be is a as an adequate response to a global problem in which the US is a quarter of, uh, of emissions. Um, uh, and nobody really thinks that it's sensible to have the U.S. outside the system. The sort of terrible paradox of the U.S. is they are the blocker. But if you tried to go ahead without them, you would potentially just allow America not to take part in the whole effort of emissions reduction. And that could, could not possibly be a good thing. There, is, there are enough pressures within the U.S. not to take action for the international community not to encourage it by saying, well, well, we'll just carry on without you. So everybody wants the U.S. in. But as Suzanne says, it's a real problem because the, uh, the U.S. Uh, Obama administration really cannot deliver anything very meaningful. Now, of course, we can't talk about the U.S. stance on the environment without mentioning uh, the cables leaked by WikiLeaks over the past week. The cables really showed, um, some of them anyway, the lengths to which the U.S. went to maximize support for the non-binding deal that came out of last year's Copenhagen conference, the so-called Copenhagen Accord. Now, in the wake of the uh, of the disappointing end to that conference, uh, we uh, to get what it wanted, America launched a campaign of what might be called diplomatic shock and awe, complete with spying, threats and bribes. Now, this is Pablo Salon, UN ambassador for Bolivia's reaction to the cables. Well, I would say that WikiLeaks is, for us, confirms what we have always said, that they put a lot of pressure to buy countries, to isolate them in order to oblige them to agree on the Copenhagen Accord. And we feel very happy to have stand up and to not... uh, uh, and to be a group of countries that said, no, we don't accept that blackmail, and that Copenhagen Accord is not acceptable. WikiLeaks confirms the way they try to push for it, and it uh, gives us a great satisfaction to know that we were on the right path that uh, horrible night in Copenhagen. Uh, we made so many complaints, because if you read what we say <coughs> all the time, is we complain about the way that the U.S. gets involved into internal affairs, for example, of Bolivian policy. We hope that this will change, and we are always seeking for that. We really are very concerned of what sovereignty means. I'm sure that the U.S. will never accept nobody pushing around with the U.S., but the U.S. doesn't accept the same rules for countries like us. That was Pablo Salon reacting to the WikiLeaks revelations. Um, Susie, how have the cables been received in Cancun? Well, obviously, there's a huge amount of interest, um, and but I, I, th- I think that a lot of people would uh, agree with Mr. Salon. This doesn't tell us a lot that we don't know, because from the very start, uh, America was really clear. If you don't deal, you're not going to get any money. I mean, they laid that out at Copenhagen, and 
you know, people now see that they followed through. There's been some uh, bemusement, I guess, from some negotiators I've talked to. They've wondered if their emails are going to come out uh, in the WikiLeaks, and they're kind of relieved that it's just official diplomatic cables and that their communications um, won't, their personal communications won't enter into it. Um, but they do wonder now if they're going to find out what Todd Stern and uh, other negotiators really think of them. Rob, were you at all surprised by what you read? Uh, not particularly, no. I mean, it's a sad fact of international negotiations, whether it's at the UNFCCC or at the WTO, that there tend to be sweeteners provided by uh, rich countries in in uh, as part of the negotiating process and uh, that, you know, arms are twisted behind backs and aid is usually one of the key levers in these sorts of negotiations. So it's a sad fact, I'm afraid, of international negotiations that these sorts of things go on. Uh, and Michael, do you think it's going to have any effect on the way that the US operates in this sort of sphere? No, I don't. I mean, it, there's quite a lot of synthetic shock and horror, uh, really, isn't there? Sort of US diplomats, diplomats carry out American policy um, is not really a great revelation. As Suzanne says, America made it quite clear that the money was conditional upon countries agreeing to the agreement in which the money was made. And they, ha- they made no apology about that. So to find American diplomats um, carrying out that policy really is not much of a surprise. Well, Could we can... I just come in here? Yes, John. Just a second, because the developing countries have actually been trying to make these points for the last five, ten years, that they say that the playing field uh, is just not level at all and uh, that the, uh, the America, Britain as well, um, rich countries shamelessly um, uh, uh, twist arms or hinds back and, and, and threat and, um, and, and use every possible diplomatic tool. It's a ruthless game out there. And I think what we saw and what developing countries uh, in Cancun, are, uh, they're not surprised. I mean, they just say this is, this is how it works, um, but it stinks and um, something has to get better. And Michael? Um, uh, I'm surprised you say that, uh, John, about um, uh, the United Kingdom, because the UK uh, and, uh, by and large, other European countries um, did not say that the money uh, that was provided in Fast Start Finance was conditional upon countries uh, signing up to the Copenhagen Accord. There was a very strong sense, and I was a part of the UK government, so I know this, that um, uh, that, that should not be done for precisely the reason that it would antagonise developing countries, and the US Michael, position with, had done with, so. With, with respect, I mean, you were twisting Ethiopia's and the Maldives and others. Um, and we know this for a fact, that there was you know, all kinds of threats and promises and uh, deals being done with vulnerable countries. Um, this was you know, very much part of Britain's uh, agenda. One important thing to point out here might be that the money actually hasn't materialized. For all those threats, the money may have been allocated, but as Jairam Ramesh is saying, and as countries like Mal- the Maldives and Bangladesh, who, were, who did have their arms twisted, are saying, they still don't have that fast-track money. I think that's a key point. For all the threats and all the promises, that money isn't there yet, and they need it. Okay, can I just get let, let Michael come back on some of that? I think it's insulting to Ethiopia and the Maldives, both of whom were in the room uh, helping to negotiate the Copenhagen Accord, to say that the only reason that they signed up to something that they negotiated was because they were threatened. It's simply not the case. They do want the money, but they also wanted the Copenhagen Accord because it binds the developed countries in, and indeed China and, and India and Brazil and the major, major emerging, emerging economies, in to take action 
action to provide that money. So uh, I simply don't think it is the case uh, uh, that it's fair to say that the UK was involved in bribery and manipulation and so on. Those developing countries um, are able to act in their own right. But Suzanne is absolutely right. It is true that the money has not been flowing fast enough and it is, uh, 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 it is not um, at all conducive to trust in the process, never mind the, the uh, WikiLeaks cables, that the most developed countries have not yet provided the money that they promised. Now, they claim that it's coming through the pipeline and so on, but um, uh, that complaint seems to me an entirely legitimate one. Okay, let, let's just pause this discussion uh, and move on to hear how the US reacted to some of this. Um, uh, this is climate envoy Todd Stern comparing his stance uh, with how Norway's Eric Stolheim dealt with uh, other primary claims at Copenhagen. You, you can't, on the one hand, uh, ask for and uh, make a strong case, legitimately strong case, uh, for the need for climate assistance and then on the other hand, turn around and accuse us of bribery. I mean, if you want to accuse us of bribery, then, you know, we can eliminate any, any cause for, for accusation of bribery by eliminating any money. And uh, Eric was powerful in that statement. I agreed with it 110% then, and I do now. Rob, I mean, do you think it's as, as simple as, as bribery, or um, is that a sort of black and white way of, of uh, portraying this? Well, the negotiation is very complicated. And uh, like Michael and Susan have said, the US is always very clear up front that the fast start finance was conditional uh, on countries signing up to the accord. The really key issue for developing countries here is that the money hasn't materialised as it was expected to. And in a lot of cases, even where the money has materialised, it's stuck in some trust fund somewhere governed by the World Bank and developing countries can't access it, or it's actually coming out of pre-allocated aid budgets anyway. So it's not actually new and additional money, as the Copenhagen Accord said it would be, but it's actually uh, money that's been repackaged, recycled, repledged from existing commitments. What about that, that point? Because that is one that's levied against the UK government from time to time, that, that some of these climate pledges are not quite what they seem and that actually there's been siphoning off of aid money into, into this way. Well, the UK government is actually one of the few that has given additional money. Not all the money that's pledged for climate is additional to, um, uh, to what was promised uh, uh, already. That's partly because some had already been promised and that was included by the UK government, both the previous one and the present one in its calculation but other countries are simply repackaging aid and there's nothing new and additional and that is a legitimate complaint absolutely. Susie. Well I think it's very important to focus on what Todd Stern was saying was basically we will dole out this money and you better just put up and shut up. Now the fact is that that, look why why are we giving that why is our industrialized countries giving that climate aid? It's because they cause this huge global problem for which the poor countries are now disproportionately going to suffer. So you know and he's just treating it as some charity it's actually an obligation. You know the development of the West was carried carried out with costs to the environment, costs to which populations living in the poorest countries in the world are going to have to pay. And, you know, this is compensation. It's not charity. And I think, you know, that attitude is really telling from Todd Stern. We've been looking with the Overseas Development Institute at flows of this climate finance. And as Susie was saying, the the logic for climate finance isn't one of, of aid and charity. It's to reflect the fact that climate change is making development much, much, much more expensive for poor countries. These are the countries that are least responsible for creating the problem. And now climate change means they have to 
to follow more expensive low carbon paths to development and they also need to invest very heavily and very quickly in reducing the vulnerability of their populations to climate shocks because it's the poorest countries that are on the front lines of okay. climate change. And John, the final word to you on this on this topic. I mean, loans and aid and charity. <laughs> it's um, it's again the the the. the complaint of the developing countries is this follows a pattern which has been going on for a very long time that climate aid comes on top of uh, bad aid which has which has never got through um, and uh, and and they they are very very disillusioned with the whole uh, attempt to, 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 to counter climate change. I mean, money is important uh, for a lot of the countries, but for some it's much more than that. It's actually about survival. Um, and there, they again, they feel they cannot trust the, uh, the rich countries. And uh, as one of the ambassadors said to me yesterday, we have a choice, you know, which islands do we lose? Which, co- which people do we lose? Uh, for many people at these talks, you know, the, what is on offer is really survival or very, very great marginalisation. Well, now for something uh, completely different. At these events, you get the usual suspects letting everyone who will listen know that climate change is a myth. Christopher Monckton famously compared protesters at last year's summit to Hitler Youth. He's in Cancun causing trouble again, and John asked him to explain how scientists can have got it so terribly wrong on climate change. It's not all the scientists. The number of scientists who have studied, with respect, the question of climate sensitivity, which is how much warming you get from a given increase in CO2 concentration, is numbered in the dozens worldwide. I've just been wandering around Latin America. I've been wandering around Nepal and many yes. other places, and we find that there is so much evidence of change, of enormous change. Are you saying that none of this has anything to do with man whatever. What I'm saying is that it is not yet clear to me from the global temperature what would it need? record... What would it need for you to be clear, for you to put aside your well, scepticism? Uh, let me and, give you one or two of the... the well, I mean, I, I won't put aside scepticism. Science is done by scepticism. Whether you like it or not, it is not done by quasi-religious belief of the sort that you hold. I don't hold that kind of belief. I look at the evidence, and therefore the evidence that I should require to see is of an acceleration... And in the exactly, rate that is exactly uh-huh. what the, in the World rate, Meteorological just Organization was saying. Wait a minute! I am looking. Wait a minute! I am looking for an acceleration in the rate at which the global warming that has happened over the last 300 years is occurring. I'm sorry, I get the actual data. I don't believe what these people say until I have seen the data, put it onto the computer, analysed it, graphed it, so that I can see what the, 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 the data are doing. And if you take the uh, time since late in 2001, when there was a phase transition in the behaviour of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation from its warming phase to its cooling phase, there has been no global warming since then. Lord Monckton there in a heated exchange with John Vidal. Um, There's a lot of talk about scepticism being on the rise uh, in the wake of Copenhagen or in the wake of last year's cold winters in in uh, the US and uh, and the UK or or to do with climate gate, that sort of thing. Um, uh, Michael, is that is that the case? Uh, no, not really. Uh, despite all of those things, in fact, the uh, vast majority of people around the world in surveys um, uh, acknowledge that there is human-made climate change and that we have to do something about it. And frankly, far too much is made of the sceptics by the media. Susie, what, what's the situation in the US? Because obviously, um, you know, public opinion well, there is generally much more sceptical. Yeah, there is, there is uh, a big difference between uh, public perceptions in the US and in Europe. 
um, certainly, and that what we've seen is over the last few or, few years, not just the last year, you know, since the um, client, so-called Climate Gate and Glacier Gate scandals, but over the last few years, there's been a rise in the number of people who do not believe that climate change is man-made or who do not believe that there is any kind of climate change uh, whatsoever, and and that um, makes it much more difficult uh, to to push through policies that would actually deal with climate change. Um, Rob, obviously Oxfam's position um, is is very clear on on climate change. Have you received any kind of backlash from sceptical voices out there for that? You get the odd crank email every time you uh, you know you do a press release on climate change, but no, we've we, we we've been um, we've been relatively lucky and we've not drawn too much fire, I think. But you know, I, I just want to make the point that we, we do a huge amount of work in developing countries. Oxfam Great Britain has programs in something like a hundred developing countries around the world, and a lot of the communities we're working with don't even know what anthropogenic climate change is. They've never even heard of it, but they know. The weather is changing. They know temperatures are getting hotter. They know the seasons are shifting. They know their lives are getting harder, that they don't know when the next rains are going to come, that when when the hot season comes, it's much hotter and it lasts longer. They're having trouble planting their crops. So climate change is a reality. And, uh, you know, it, we really need to get on with, with solving the problem. Well, the voices of sceptics have been somewhat muted at Cancun, uh, and actually compared with Copenhagen, um, so have the demonstrations, or at least that's the way it seemed from outside. But John, you've been uh, out on the streets with some of the protesters. Could you tell us uh, about that? Well, these talks are remarkable because the, uh, the Mexico has really made absolutely sure that no one gets anywhere near the, the main conference halls. And so there's sort of not just a ring of steel, but it's 35 kilometers away. But having said that, um, the social movements and the indigenous peoples um, uh, and the peasant movements have come in some force. And so there are at least three or 4,000 uh, people gathered, and they've come from all over Mexico, all over Latin America. Um, and they've been holding their own parallel conference, which is, I have to say, uh, is, is not very complimentary to the UN uh, summit. Um, basically, they're saying that uh, market-driven uh, forces are not going to, 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 to change anything um, and that the solutions being proposed by the countries um, in, in the main halls are basically false solutions and they will get us absolutely nowhere at all. They very much fear that, in fact, a bad deal here could make things far worse. In other words, if you have a, a red conservation forest deal which doesn't provide protection, then actually the tens of millions of people who depend on forests for their livelihoods actually could be in a worse situation. And so they are very, very upset. Tell us about the uh, protester that you met. Right, okay. Well, there's, um, Via Campesina is a, is a large sort of peasant movement um, from, from around the world. Um, I, I met a woman who was a Navajo Indian, um, and uh, she was uh, really very, very not cynical, but very disillusioned with the whole UN process. This conference is not addressing climate change because it is not addressing the root causes of climate change, which is the emission of carbon dioxide, particularly by industrialized countries such as the United States where I live. Instead, this conference is trying to steer the world community in a different direction in order to create a new commodity out of the air and biodiversity. It's doing these through pushing two agendas. One is to pass an agreement on forest offsets, particularly REDS, 
and the second is to push technology fixes. The people here, our government leaders, are not discussing anything about meeting CO2 reduction targets, and instead it's trying to get everybody to agree to uh, forest offsets. Forest offsets, REDS, in fact, hurt our communities in the United States and hurt our communities elsewhere. Richard Branson is also in Cancun. He has long held the view that an agreement between governments on climate change is unlikely and that instead business and industry can play its part. He's over there plugging a new international mechanism to improve the energy efficiency of shipping. You know, the aim is to get a gigaton of carbon out of the 17 principal in industries that emit carbon mm. uh, and if we can get the 17 gigatons out that sorts the problem out. We've started with shipping and we started with cities. Instead of attacking industries mm. we're, we're sitting down uh, with the industries and saying look you, you could maybe you could save a lot of money if we can all be clever with mm. this mm. Uh, or if you're talking about cities um, you know let's find a uh, a company that can, mm. you know, do the air conditioning at 90% less than the current air conditioning. Let's, you know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and once, you know, once one's discovered these things, let's um, mm. share that information on a global basis. Mm. As a business people, <laughs> you know, we, we, as entrepreneurs, we look at a problem, you know, I mean, how can we get man into space? And then we go out and we try to find the the best engineer, the best technologists, and right. we try to overcome all, all the you know all the problems to mm. set up a commercial spaceship company. Mm. Um, you know, likewise with carbon being the enemy, we've sat down as business people and looked at you know how it can be addressed, and then we've broken it down. So, how do things like the shipping and get mm. funded? I mean, what, what we are now doing is is separately talking to foundations, big foundations, and so, saying to them, you give away, you know. X hundreds, you know, well, let's say all mm. the foundations together collectively, mm. they give away billions a year. Mm. Instead of necessarily give, you know, to take, say, 20% of the billions that you give away mm. and actually invest it as the mm. risk capital in, say, winglets for the ships. And because they will, it's the risk capital, they, they might lose it, mm. then it's possible to get the other 80% of the money. Richard Branson there in Cancun. Um, Susie, to what extent is that kind of uh, rhetoric from business people uh, around in the U.S.? Oh, there's a lot of lot of it um, in the U.S., um, certainly from venture capitalists, hedge fund managers. There's a very powerful um, business lobby for climate change in the U.S. Uh, it was mobilized at first to uh, push for climate change legislation, and now that that's totally fallen through, they're still focused on uh, trying to get smaller uh, measures like um, a renewable energy standard that would uh, make it mandatory for states to get, or for um, all of the country to get more of its energy from things like wind and solar power. Um, but they are just trying to uh, get more um, federal government regulations that would uh, help uh, promote uh, renewable energy and clean energy. So there's really a very strong voice from the business community now for that kind of stuff. Well, someone else who thinks a deal at Cancun is not necessarily the be-all and end-all is environmental activist and journalist George Mombio. Well, I, I think, first of all, a recognition that continuing to bang, bang your head against the wall isn't going to damage the wall but is going to leave a very large dent in your head and that the only sensible option here is to stop doing it and to 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 accept that the current process has failed 
Um, and, and until people are brave enough to do that, we really can't move on. Um, but then I think we also need to, to see that, you know, this should not be a question of nation against nation. We are all in this together, or we damn well should all be in this together, because global warming is something which affects everybody, and climate breakdown will have a devastating effect on populations all over the world. And and we've got to realize that the problem is our excessive consumption of fossil fuels, and unless we focus it on fossil fuels, then we're going to be faced with an almost impossible regulatory task. It, it has to, we have to narrow it down to where it can be most effective um, and, and to get your biggest global effect for the smallest amount of effort. I think it's a question of basically regulating most of the use of fossil fuels out of existence in favor of a, um, a largely fossil fuel free energy economy, um, which is technically perfectly easy to do. It's just that the political will is currently missing. George Wombio there. Uh, if only it were that easy <laughs> to get to a fossil fuel um, free economy. Anyway, um, uh, on, in terms of uh, the talks themselves, I mean, it's very um, tempting for us in the media to kind of look at every all of the minutiae and the two and fourth of the negotiations. But um, Michael, oh, are these negotiations ever going to go anywhere, do you think? Well, they might do, and we certainly should continue negotiating because a global agreement with common rules is a would be a very good thing. But um, there are, we must be very careful not to assume that if the talks don't go well and if there is minimal progress, as is quite possible in Cancun, that means nothing is happening on climate change. Um, the talks go on in a sort of parallel universe um, in which there is immense focus within these conferences and amongst the negotiators and the media following them on the minutiae of text. But in emissions are not cut by text. Emissions occur because, as George Monbiot says, um, we live in a fossil fuel economy. And they will be cut when countries and companies uh, invest in low-carbon forms of energy. And the extraordinary thing is, whatever happens in the talks, this is beginning to happen. We hit a turning point last year in which more was invested in low-carbon, renewable forms of energy than in fossil fuels. Now, that is a global turning point in which the world is beginning to shift in its new production of energy towards low-carbon sources and energy efficiency. And this is going on in the very countries that are arguing um, uh, in Cancun against one another, as George says, and stopping an agreement being reached, if you like. And yet that is going on in their country. So China, India, Brazil, the EU, up to a point, not much in the US, and the US is an, out, uh, an outlier, are now beginning to shift into uh, a different mode of, uh, of an energy economy, a lower carbon energy economy. They're also still investing in coal. So we're at this kind of turning point, and a huge amount can be done to accelerate the process of investment by companies, by the multilateral development banks like the World Bank, by governments through their aid in the low-carbon economy, whether or not the climate talks succeed or fail. And there's this parallel world, the real world, in which we can engage in this investment and we can encourage that whatever happens in the talks. But isn't the problem that, you know, low-carbon um, energy tends to be more expensive because it's, you know, it's not as well-established as things like coal and 
and oil and gas. And so, you know, that tends to be the more expensive option. And therefore, unless you have, you know, top down policies that, that redress the balance, then, you know, that's not going to happen. And that's to, exactly it, what's as quickly happening. as it should. Uh, that's exactly right. That's why it's not as easy as George Mumbio um, likes to make out. But that is exactly what's happening. Countries are beginning to do this. And it's difficult. It's hard politically to win the coalitions of support amongst businesses, as Suzanne said, in the States and the public for things that are more expensive than the alternative. But it is beginning to happen. It needs to be accelerated. And outside the talks, what we need to see are efforts going in through, for example, uh, richer countries making it cheaper and easier for developing countries to go down this route, um, needs to see investment in those spheres. But it is beginning to happen, and there's plenty um, of hope and possibility there, whatever happens in the talks. Uh, Suzanne, I mean, just picking up on a point that Tim Worth made earlier on, that that there may not be a deal for 10 or 20 years. Um, Is that conceivable? And if it is, you know, can we get where where the world needs to be without an agreement? I haven't spoken to anybody yet who believes that we can get to where we need to be without an agreement. But they all say that at the same time, you can you can do a lot. And some of this is, is already going on, even the US, in the U.S., especially in California, where there has been a lot of money uh, migrating to uh, clean energy uh, technology. And also in the U.S., you have now uh, the beginnings of cap-and-trade systems in more than 20 of uh, the 50 U.S. states. Um, so there are uh, efforts underway, um, businesses moving in that direction, even oil companies are moving in that direction, you know, but putting a small portion of money into research into fuels like algae. But um, these will only take you a small bit of the distance uh, towards uh, lowering emissions, and they will not uh, insulate, um, you know, this will only sort of apply to sort of major developing economies and the industrialized world, and they will not insulate the rest of the world from uh, the ravages of climate change. So they're really limited. Okay, uh, just time for a a couple of final thoughts. John, um, do you think that there's a sense that, that we can go on without without these talks? I think we have no option. I think we have a UN system as well, which we have to respect. Um, and uh, it's just that countries are not respecting it, and, and, and we're seeing this you know, in, in, uh, in, in many different ways. It's not bust. Um, nobody has come up with a better idea for it yet. My sense from talking to people here is that agreement will be possible. Um, it will be very weak. It will be wishy-washy. Um, it will be opaque, and it will be interpretable by in any way by anyone. Uh, but at least it's a start. I mean, that's incredibly important. It does need um, uh, international agreement um, to give the confidence to uh, industry and, and investors to put the trillions of dollars into, and to gain the trillions of dollars which is at stake. These are environment talks, but they are actually very, very large-scale economic talks as well. The prize is so huge that I think in the end we will get there, definitely. And Rob, are you optimistic? I am. And, and it's interesting, actually, that we've been talking about the UNFCCC is delivering a global deal on emissions. But the other really important thing that it has to do is deliver an international framework to deliver finance to help the poorest and most vulnerable countries cope with climate change. And this really is something that you do need an international agreement to do properly. And it is something that can be agreed very quickly. One of the big wins, one of the big potential wins that Cancun deliver is agreement on the form of a new global climate fund. And that's why it's really important that America stops holding a new global climate fund hostage to other areas of the negotiations. Well, that seems a 
a very appropriate place to leave things. You've been listening to this week's Focus podcast. Many thanks to my guests, Rob Bailey, Michael Jacobs, John Vidal and Suzanne Goldenberg. I'm James Randerson and the producers were Peter Sale and Andy Duckworth. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.